Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age podcast. This is your host, C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I am speaking to you from Irvine, California. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or wherever you are in the universe. This is Stephen G. Fullwood, and I am the co-founder of the Nomadic Archivist Project, and I'm coming to you from Harlem and recovering from a head injury um, from a bike accident I had last Thursday. Mm. And we are blessed that you are recovering. Uh, this is Seth Rodney. I am formerly the opinions editor at Hyperallergic, and now I'm a senior critic there. And I am coming to you from Newburgh, New York. Uh, this is to remind our listeners that we practice a form of what we like to call intellectual intimacy, which is giving ourselves the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. And today we are going to talk about a book that Seth had asked us to read uh, called The Hatred of Poetry by Ben Lerner. Uh, let Seth, you know, we probably don't need to do a full gloss of the book because that'll be the conversation, but uh, I'll <laughs> let Seth kind of introduce us to, uh, you know, why he wanted us to read this and how he found it. So take it away, Dr. Rodney. Thank you. I was given the book by one of our frequent or regular listeners, uh, an artist oh. who I really adore, uh, Nadine, um, Nadine um, Farage. And uh, Nadine gave me the book, I think it was years ago. Everything seems mm -hmm. like it was years ago. And, <laughs> and I don't recall the conversation that she we had when she gave it to me. I think it may have been the time when, might have been the same time when she gave me a piece of hers that I now have hung up in my bedroom. But I remember thinking that it was somehow important. So I had it on my desk for a long time. And one day when I was going to work, I have an hour and a half train ride to get from where I am into the city. I figured oh, I'll just start pecking at it and see what I, I, it gets me. And mm -hmm. so I started reading this book, uh, The Hatred of Poetry. And in it, Ben Lerner makes some, makes it, the essence, essential argument he's making is that there's a way in which poetry is off, always fails. And he, he begins this by, um, begins this argument by talking, telling an anecdote mm. when he was a kid in grade school, ninth grade, and, uh, was t told to memorize a poem to deliver to the class. And the poem that he chose, because he is a smart ass and thought, I'll just do something really short and I, I won't have to extend myself to too much is uh, Marion Moore's poetry, which in the 1967 version reads in its entirety, I, too, dislike it. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. So he, t he starts off here and he goes into talking about why Plato thought that Poets would absolutely be banished from his republic uh, mm -hmm. because of a corrosive influence, um, <laughs> and and he goes into um, uh, various historical defenses of poetry, and essentially says that poetry makes a space for that music of the spheres that most of the time it just doesn't manifest. Uh, he talks about. How or re or reaches for right reaches right. for right. It, it's, it's the reach it, yeah mm -hmm. it's reaches for. right it's it's about it's just about this transcendent gesture but it never actually gets to transcend never lands um, yeah right right so poetry is always kind of a failure but he says that that is important because in the, in sort of 
constructing our perfect contempt for poetry, what we're doing is realizing that it does point to something beyond ourselves. And then when we are asked to sing, we can sing something of an approximation of -hmm. that transcendent idea, that transcendent being, but only an approximation of that. So we can, that's, that's, there's a lot more to the argument, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. I wanted to start off, as I uh, indicated to Travis before, mm-hmm. with this, um, part of the argument that he um, begins to make on pages seven through eight. He says, poetry arises from the desire to get beyond the finite and the historical, the human world of violence and difference, and to reach the transcendent or divine. And then he says on page eight further on, this song of the infinite is compromised by the finitude of its terms. And I, mm-hmm. and right here I thought, I don't know how I could disagree with this man more. Like, mm. and, and, and here's, here's the analogy that I used to when I actually talk about storytelling. I, I, Stephen and I worked together on a project for the Mississippi Museum of Art. Well, I was giving a, I gave him a workshop on storytelling and Stephen gave him a workshop on archiving and, um, documenting their, their, mm-hmm. their work. And in the storytelling workshop, which I think you were part of, I think you sat in on most of my session, right? Mm-hmm. I did. Um, Stephen, you, uh, I said a key part of storytelling is description. So when you are talking about a thing in your life, you do not say the car outside the window. You say the Chevy Tahoe with the New Jersey license plates out my window Mm -hmm. in order to get people to kind of see more of your reality. The point of any sort of verbal explanation, um, definition, is to actually be finite, is to actually be really detailed and specific. That is how we actually come to grasp the world. That is how we come to make sense of it. It is not, it is not just the uniform. It's the blazing red uniform, right? Like, so, so off, so from off, off the bat, I start disagreeing with, uh, Ben Lerner. And I say, and I, and I tell, and I, and I said to myself, I wrote this down. Um, this is almost completely wrong or at least assumes that only a <laughs> narrow vision of the poetic tradition. Some poems are about confession. Some are written right. not just to play with language. Some are about precisely dragging you through the muck and mire because they come from a world of pain and that ugliness is in some ways meaningful. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of, um, oh, what's her name? Anne Sexton. Um, okay. when she says, um, when man enters woman like the surf biting the shore and a woman opens her mouth in pleasure and her teeth gleam like the alphabet and logos appears milking a star. And then towards the end of the poem, she says, and, um, that, that, that they tie a knot together and that God in his, uh, um, mm. what is it? Um, cruelty or indifference or something like that <laughs> unties the knot. Like that's, that for me is like being in the muck and the mire. This is like, this is our lived existence. Like mm-hmm. we know what it's like to be with someone so physically in such a physically compelling way that you feel like you are knotted together. And then there's something mm-hmm. happens where the knot unties. I mean, not necessarily, you know, bad. Sometimes you just have to get up and go to work in the morning and somehow that knot becomes untied. And, Mm-hmm. And to talk about that experience as being like grasping for the, like I, 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 I just think he cuts it wrong 
com- mm. almost completely wrong. Mm. And I'm Steven, interested to hear what you guys have to say about that. Yeah, I, ha- I have words, but I want, I want Stephen to. I have words too. And so I have words too. Um, anyhow. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so when I read it, I, I read it with a tongue in cheek. Okay. I mean, that's how he appeared to me because he actually explains a little bit along the line who am I to say what poetry is? Mm-hmm. He didn't say it verbatim, but it was just that moment. Because I, like you, was going, yeah, this is one way to kind of consider the. The brilliance of poetry or the transcendence mm. of poetry, but not the poem. And I like that. I like going along with that. And then by the time he gets to a part in the book where I feel like he was, wasn't was really all that aware of how the personal mm. is, the more specific you get, the more universal things get. Exactly. So I can identify with Dorothy Parker. Yes. I'm not a white woman. You know, do you know what I mean? So like there were these moments where I was reading through it and going, no, I don't think that's it. I think that his pushback on the, on the specific really got me going, oh no, I get what you're saying, but also the door is too narrow for me to get into your argument. Mm. But I Mm. like it because Mm. I like the way that you talk about, like, there are some poems that do stop time. Like Mm -hmm. time isn't, it's just like, oh my Mm -hmm. God, there's a woman named Barbara DeSasso. Barbara Desasare, mm-hmm. who whose first book called Jigsaw um, Eyesore mm. is just wonderful. Mm. She's mm. from Pennsylvania. And I heard her at the um, was the Bowery Club. Mm. And my God, she got up on stage and she was introducing her work. And I said, this is somebody I need to hear. Mm. She was mm-hmm. both effective as a poet on stage as well as she, on page. And I've just been following her work forever. Because mm-hmm. it spoke to me again, a white woman, but mm-hmm. I got what she was doing mm-hmm. and what you were, what you just talked about, the specificity of the red coat. What kind of red coat was it? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. does it link to another metaphor around blood? What does mm-hmm. it do? You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I like what um, Ben is doing in the book, but I, I disagree with him on some areas. But again, I think read it tongue in cheek because he was, he goes in with something that's a little, I hate poetry, but I'm a poet. <laughs> yeah. And then how do you measure those spa- the, the the space between those two things? Mm. So why do you do it? Mm. You know. <laughs> and so there's other things I want to say about the notion of a published poet versus just someone calling themselves a poet mm. because it felt very it, it was fun and silly to me and then also it was like, yeah, no, I completely get it. Cuz when people say you're are, do you have anything? Are you are you published? Are you verified? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you get the little right, blue right. check? Do you have a blue next check? To your name? Right. right, right. right. And so I'm like, yeah. going, fuck. And, and so, anyway, I have other anecdotes I want to share about things. But, Travis, you yeah. have something to say? Yeah. So, I, I feel like Ben Lerner's telling on himself a little bit. I feel like what we're reading mm. is Ben Lerner coming to terms with his fallen status oh. in oh. in the tradition of poetry um mm. uh because so i would just echo and not improve upon what you both just said about the particular being the universal mm-hmm. I, I mean i think that's that's absolutely the path and i think that's part of what a poem does uh one of the major 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 omissions in the book and just doesn't even seem to occur to him at no page is it uh, alluded to no gesture towards it at all when he talks about the failures of how poetry can never do the thing that it purports to do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
he hasn't at all come to terms with the history of religious poetry. Uh, mm. I mean, like, Oof, yeah. you know, Genesis, you know, Psalms, uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, any number of Buddhist sutras, the Quran, the Vedas. Mm. I mean, these are all poems. Language itself right. is born out of a poetic language. And yes. so mm-hmm. he doesn't, and it's fine. It's not a book about that. I, I, who cares? It doesn't have to write about that, but to suggest right. That to not reach any further back than the romantics mm-hmm. is just someone that I would consider not very serious on the topic. And, mm, okay. uh, and while it's a useful exercise for our podcast and to talk about, and I think it's mm-hmm. a nice way into the, the particular as universal, I think that's a, w- a welcome conversation. I feel like he was just pretty inadequately prepared to tackle the tension between the universal and the particular in history um, and how mm-hmm. it doesn't have fuck all to do with he, you know, the, at, towards the end, there's the, you know, drops in the, the white male uh, yeah. gesture to talk about the, we like, I'm sorry, white, we, me, I am not the only one to do that. We white men are not the only one to do that in history. It. Like mm, yeah. it's, mm. this is any time that a priest or a, um, uh, yeah, no, I guess they were priests. Anytime a priest before the rabbinic tradition stood before their their congregants mm-hmm. and declared that they were Jews, he was speaking for all of the people besides himself, and that man was not white. Like whiteness is itself a poetic invention, as is blackness. Yeah. Like these, mm-hmm. th- none of these things. They're all insubstantial, and so like I was, uh, I was fairly disappointed in in how limited his imagination seemed to be to deal with the topic at hand. Mm, I love that because that is like Mm. at academic conferences when like, you know, they made the presentation and they have the Q and a time and, um, Mm -hmm. and someone stands up in the back and just kind of like, (laughs) <laughs> to succinctly dismantle the whole like, presentation. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like you have a howitzer on silence. Like <laughs> it's like it's like that's where that's kind of what you just did. You're like, well, you know, I really don't take him very seriously because <laughs> he doesn't seem to know what he's talking about. <laughs> but that in and of itself is an impossible project. Mm. You're mm. sitting on a panel giving a talk for 15 minutes, and you're mm. supposed to be able to cover all of this space. Mm. So it's all about framing it for mm-hmm, me, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, this is yeah. an inquiry into, mm. here's a take on mm. that kind of thing. So mm. yeah, yeah I've, I've been to those places before where some, in fact, it was black portraitures. I was sitting on a panel next to a, a gentleman who was talking about a particular artist and then mm. someone up, up front was like, well, one, two, three. There are the three things you didn't mention or say something about this artist. Mm. And I felt like, yes, and... How specific were they to his argument in general? Right. And I didn't feel like they were because he was taking an aspect of it. But I think she she wanted to catch him. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how honest she was being. Mm. And I also feel like sometimes people take that opportunity to go, well, you didn't describe the 15th, 17th <laughs> century, blah, 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 blah. And I go, you're just playing around. You don't have any... Because you could frame that in so a different way. You could have right. framed it as a question. Did you know about this? Or, right. I, mean, I, I I was wondering what you thought about blah blah blah, and I've right. seen so, people do this better. Stephen, can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you think my Do you think my my interrogation of him was unfair for that? Do you think I was asking him to do something mm. that he was not purporting to do? No, I was more intrigued by the idea of the lack of imagination, and I said, "Well, for me, part of it, like me, it, I it allowed me to go more wider." 
because mm. I didn't think of it as a comprehensive thing. I thought of it as an inquiry. And again, as I mentioned, I thought it was very tongue in cheek. He was humor throughout, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, so, I mean, how many pages is this? This little tiny 86. Book? 86 yeah. pages. 86 pages of yeah. someone who is wrestling with poetry and losing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and what you said earlier on about his own, you know, sort of like revealing his own pretensions towards a particular kind of poet, poetry mm-hmm. that I thought was interesting. So, no, I, don't, I thought your, um, your look at it was fine. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, very, I, I, yeah. Very, okay. very, very, very um, uh, well articulate takedown. I want to read this poem because this came to mind when I was um, reading Ben's book. Um, mm-hmm. It's a poem called "What Work," titled "What Work Is," and it's by Philip Levine, who okay. is uh, someone I deeply respect. Jewish man, older generation. Uh, I heard when I used when I was living in New York in my twenties. There's a time he was. I guess doing a a round of um of of uh, readings, visit, yeah, and and I and I went to hear him twice in the same week, and um, loved it. So here's what work is: mm-hmm. we stand in the rain in a long line waiting at Ford Highland Park for work. You know what work is. If you're old enough to read this, you know what work is, although you may not do it. Forget you. This is about waiting, shifting from one foot to another, feeling the light rain falling like mist into your hair, blurring your vision. Until you think you see your own brother ahead of you, maybe ten places. You rub your glasses with your fingers, and of course, it's someone else's brother. Narrower across the shoulders than yours, but with the same sad slouch, the grin that does not hide the stubbornness, the sad refusal to give in to rain, to the hours wasted waiting, to the knowledge that somewhere ahead, a man is waiting who will say, no, we're not mm. hiring today, for any reason he wants. <laughs> you love your brother. Now, suddenly, you can hardly stand the love flooding you for your brother, who's not beside you or behind you or ahead of you, because he's home trying to sleep off a miserable night shift at Cadillac so he can get up before noon to study his German. Works eight hours a night so he can sing Wagner, the opera you hate most, the worst (laughs) music ever invented. How long has it been since you told him you loved him, held, held his wide shoulders, opened your eyes wide and said those words, and maybe kissed his cheek? You've never done something so simple. So obvious, not because you're too young or too dumb, not because you're jealous or even mean or incapable of crying in the presence of another man. No, just because you don't know what work is. Mm. Yeah, I always, uh, when you say, you know, Philip Levine, I always, uh, I always uh, reach for uh, my favorite Philip American poet, which is Philip Larkin, uh, you know, in Abadie, mm. which is who he talks about work and kind of the fear of death and the the looming death that is threaded throughout our everyday, you know, work lives and in the mornings before we get up to head out for our day or whatever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, Philip Levine is one of those I, uh, I have not, uh, loved though. I have tried to love, um, mm. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have any, like, you know, I, I'm not inspired to criticize him or something like that. It's not that it's, it's honestly the same way I feel, uh, to my own shame about Emily Dickinson. So there, there wow. are many, there, there are Dickinson poems that I do love. Um, mm. but I, Dickinson is not someone that I return to, when I need a poetic fix, um, mm. you know, so, mm. and Why that's, the shame? it's well, you know, because I, people whose uh, aesthetic judgment I trust, like really hold her up in high esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I can recognize those things, but because her poetic body doesn't grab me the way, like say Whitman's poetic body does, or maybe Keats's mm-hmm. poetic body um, right. or, um, uh, Sylvia Plath or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, I always go like, ah, you know, I wish I, you know, I wish I could sit here and like sort of wax poetic about the poet, Emily Dickinson, right. but really it's just like, ah, you know, I, <laughs> I get it. Mm-hmm. She's great, but it doesn't, it doesn't grab me. So, but, but in that particular poem or work is Travis, um, the, that, that, relationship we were talking about between the finite and the infinite being able to mm. see the and sort of mm-hmm. universal to the particular that i think really comes through right yeah like, for sure yeah yeah i think you know for me honestly you know i uh, i i had this realization this is we're, we're talking about poetry i think i so you know if if you are if you're looking so this tradition of the universal and the particular is threaded throughout uh, other literary canons besides the Western one. Mm-hmm, um, it's it's all through uh, South Asian poetry as well. Hmm. And if it were several years ago, I could remember the actual term for the two different types of poetry, but unfortunately, that's not ready at hand for me right now. But um, mm-hmm. there there is uh, maybe smriti and shruti, but I think that relates to something else. But basically, you know, there's there's the poem. There's the invocation that reaches for the universal through the particular, kind of through the ruddy particular. And then there's the poem that reaches through the universal to the particular. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of two directions. Mm-hmm. I my, my own aesthetic sense has always reflexively been attracted to the latter over the firm or the former. Okay. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't appreciate the others, but, you know, the sort of like, punch me in the gut, you know, want to memorize it, say it over and over again. It's definitely that, that second type. So, and, you know, I would say, you know, I know it's problematic to map an American writer onto that, but if you were to look at Dickinson, I would say Dickinson definitely is a lot about, you know, particulars and then sort of through her particulars, you find the universal as opposed Mm -hmm. to Whitman, who's kind of more explicitly reaching for it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I think that's a good way to talk about them because I I, I find mm-hmm. with Emily Dickinson and my problem with her is that her <laughs> almost every poem can be sung to the tune of the, um, the Battle Hymn of uh, the Yellow Rose of Texas. You know, <laughs> mm, okay. Could, you know, do okay. it like and that. Actually, don't do that. That might just ruin it for you. But but what happens with is <laughs> in some of those sort of ellipses and some of those dashes and some of those like. Mm-hmm. stuttering thoughts um you can feel her reaching for something that's slightly otherworldly slightly mystical slightly yeah you know um, yeah for sure yeah yeah i mean um, um i actually really appreciate her um after death a formal feeling comes the nerve sit ceremonious as tombs the stiff heart wonders was it 
he that born yesterday or I, I don't remember the whole thing but mm-hmm. um that poem like at the at the end it's like whoa um uh she's she's definitely she's definitely reaching for something beyond herself and yeah compelling yeah, yeah. and Admirable. i definitely yeah yeah Admirable. Uh, yeah <laughs> yeah and there are poems of hers that do you know punch me but just in general you know just it doesn't it's not what normally does it for me what did you guys find useful? Like, so, you know, a lot of times if I read, if I read a book of criticism, which this is essentially an essay, it's a critical essay. I mean, a, mm-hmm. a fairly thin one, but you know, I mean, that's what it, mm-hmm. that's what we have in front of us. I try to reflect, especially if it's on things that I, you know, um, that are meaningful to me. I try and reflect, well, how has this kind of enlarged my own vocabulary? How has this enlarged my, okay. my point of view? How is this help, you know, how is this going to help me read better in the future? How is this going to help me understand this poet or riot writer better? Wh- what did you guys think? Did, did this book do any of that for you? Would you, would you take anything into, you know, the next book of poetry that you happen to pick up or the next poem you find online or? I don't think intentionally, like maybe it's in the back of my head, mm. but I think that some of the things, I enjoyed the exercise. I liked reading it and laughing along with some of it and disagreeing with some of it. But mm. also it made me um, that much more firmly on my own side about what I like and what I don't like with mm. some poetry. Mm. It's as simple mm. as that. It's like, I was thinking that the conversation we're having right now in a way is a smaller conversation within this book. <laughs> I'm a poet. I'm not a poet. What do we think about these things, right? And so early on, I wanted to ask you both. And so I'll let Seth answer as well about what he's taken from it. But in short, I love some of the more poetic moments that I've ex- that I continue to feel sometimes don't come through writing. They come through images. Hmm. So I love the surrealness of an Andre Tarkovsky film. Mm. I love the cinematography. And so mm. it gave me space to kind of go, oh, that's why I think I think the way I think is that that mm. stuff right there gives me a lot more space mm. than sometimes written poems. Mm-hmm. I like hearing it more. Mm. I think it transcends the form of the writing. Mm. And sometimes when I'm reading, there's a woman named Cheryl Boyce Taylor who I published mm. back in 2005. Her book is called Convincing the Body. The mm-hmm. poems are so rich and descriptive. It's a great and title. She, she um she recently published a book called Mama Fife's I forget oh god I hate this that I missed I know um Mama Fife represents and she is the mother of Fife of a tribe called Quest hmm. he passed ah. away in 2016 mm, okay. yeah 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 and she wrote so it's a book of grief mm. it's a grieving book it's a mm-hmm. poetry their letters excerpts from letters from him when he was a child their photographs. It's a wonderful book. I love it. And we've done a couple talks about it. In fact, um, I'd recommend mm-hmm. you definitely buy the book. If you, if you really want to hear what grief sounds like through this particular person, how she's mm-hmm. framing it. Mm-hmm. But I remember hearing her say the page poet and the stage poet, and she felt like she excelled in both. And I agree because I can hear her. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's hard to hear people that whose language is unfamiliar to you or whose culture is culture is um, unfamiliar to you. But I think what they're talking about is familiar to you. Mm -hmm. So when people say, I can't understand this, I can't understand. You understand oppression, you understand pain, you understand love, you understand. Absolutely. So there are spaces that you can enter that poem and understand. So I feel like 
I'm always, I don't know where I'm at right now, but the poetry itself, what I took from the book is a couple of cute little things. Like I said, just my visual sensibility around poetry and that transcendent mm-hmm. space. I rarely ever feel that with written poetry. I usually hear it or I see it. And so I think this book kind of um, opened that up for me. Hmm. There, there's one part of the book, and, and I, I had said this before to Travis, that uh, I read the book mm-hmm. um, a, week, a week or two ago, and then I wanted to reread it and highlight the portions that I wasn't able to on the first reading. But I did dog ear a particular page, and this part of Learner's Argument is really convincing to me. And I think this is actually one, one of the passages where he's, he shows this kind of historical or appreciation for the historical that he doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily, in the, way, in the way Travis has pointed out, not the rest of the argument. It's on page 40. He says, there have been, of course, and continue to be multiple self-declared avant-gardes, and any generalization is necessarily reductive. Often the term is just used to describe formally experimental work. But for our purposes, we can say the avant-garde hates poems. It hates existing Mm. poems because they are part of a bankrupt society. Literature has, quote, magnified pensive immobility, ecstasy, and slumber. We want to exalt movements of aggression, feverish sleeplessness, the double march, the perilous leap, the slap, and the blow with the fist, Mm -hmm. unquote. Thus, the Italian futurists, and I think he was quoting them, often considered the first important vanguard movement. Thus, the Italian futurists often considered the first important vanguard movement. Life is a lie, and poems have been the flower of that lie, and they function to glorify or compensate for existing relations that must be destroyed. (laughs) I love that. Mm, me too. This hatred of existing poetry gives rise to the avant-garde poem in which formal experiment in which formal experiment is going to eviscerate existing canons of taste and help bring about the revolution. So Marinetti, to stay with the Italians, advocates a language that's broken free of syntax. Parole in libertà. And that experiments with typography, imagine immaginazione senza fili, hmm. and anal- analogia and pure sound, zang, tum, tum. And these words obliterate what passed for culture in the past, obliterate the category of art itself. I note in passing that Marinetti's The Manifesto of Futurism is read much more widely than any of his actual poems. The genre of the manifesto, like the defense, allows you to make claims for and about poetry while avoiding the limitations of poems. The problem is that these artworks, no matter how formally inventive, remain artworks. They might redefine the borders of art, but they don't erase those borders. A bomb never goes off. The poem remains a poem, and they hate that. The avant-garde is a military metaphor that forgets it is a metaphor. The mm. futurists, ghosts of the future past, enter the museums they wanted to flood. That's that? put that in your pipe and smoke it. I think he's right. I think he's. I think there's been lots of avant-gardes, and I think that's precisely the problem with quote-unquote avant-garde movements: is that they want to suddenly declare themselves free of the thing that gave birth to them. 
They say, oh, mm-hmm. we come out of poetry or we come out of painting or we come out of, but this painting is going to destroy the fucking world. It's like, it, it's actually not. It's, like, it's going to go on auction. It's going to go on auction at Sotheby's is what it's going to do. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to like it. And you're going to like it. And you're going to like it. <laughs> do you know? And there it is. You know, but so I think that... So when I read that, I went, well, what other ways can you approach this? This mm. this getting beyond that moment of maybe not destroying, but at the very least, charting a different path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Being aware that you are entering a system that you don't intend to blow up. You just want to be a part of the system mm-hmm. or that you recognize that there is a system and you are willing to play within it to get the thing done. Mm-hmm. Because there's something about his dismissiveness about the lack of blowing something up. Mm-hmm. And also that he doesn't know whether or not something's going to blow up. We don't know the power of poetry. It's like, or, mm-hmm. or, or literature in general, or a piece of art. We don't know mm-hmm. what it's going to inspire. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Do you know? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. I, I, the, the, you know, there's an anger and a frustration at, at finitude is really what, <laughs> I mean, so he's, you know, I do think he's fingering something, you know, you know, this is, Zeus overthrowing his father Kronos. I mean, the the, the <laughs> wanting to wanting to replace what came before because what came before it doesn't define us. Like mm. is absolutely you know one of the great youth one of the great motivators of youth movements throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, since we've all been adolescents, we understand that. Mm-hmm. And Stephen's right, though. Like sometimes it works, right? Sometimes yeah. you do actually overthrow the Absolutely. pre-existing form. I mean, this is how we end up with new linguistic regimes, and how you end mm-hmm. up with new international languages, or how you build a nation, Absolutely. right? Like mm-hmm. you know, I'm that we're you know the the state of Mexico. You're all going to speak Spanish, and Quiche is going to die out. You know, I mean, this in yeah. in, in in that way. It, it does happen that way sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But but I, would, I, I, I no, I, I was going to say even though I, I, Seth, I take your point. You're absolutely right. Bo- mostly, what they're just doing is reproducing art that is then itself going to become an object, uh, a, a commodity to be scooped up into the system. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really I mean, have anything is, other than right go to ahead, go please. where we are. But what, like to 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 paraphrase you, Travis. Like, what other moves are there? Like, what's the next move? Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. mean, literally, one of these guys. I forget, and I sh- I should know his name. And the only excuse I have is that I'm not actually an art historian. But the one of these guys canned his shit, like canned shit. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and now the, the canned shit is in some museum somewhere. Like, like, I mean, it's, 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 what, what's, it's the reduction to the point of absurdity, right? Like, it's like, yeah. you are not getting out of this fucking box. Like, and this is, this is partly why, and I know that, you know, I have this attitude because at heart, I am, um, pessimistic, um, <laughs> about our prospects. When, whenever I, I meet the new crop of undergrad students and I, I'm addressing them in some lecture and they're like, oh, well, you know, this is, this is the thing that will like bring about the revolution, right? And it's some version mm-hmm. of, oh, I have, you know, this, this argument from Adorno or this argument from Nancy, but, 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 you know, inflected by what, um, I don't know, um, by what, well, uh, Zizek yeah, Adorno- said. Yeah, I mean Adorno. De- oh, you so you're not saying Adorno because Adorno and Macruza definitely at the end thought you there is not going to be 
you can't really overcome those systems because it just gets recuperated. Mm-hmm. Right. But what happens is that they mm-hmm. get recruited by some young master's or undergraduate student. He's like, yeah, but what Adorno really meant or what Adorno missed sure, was sure, a little bit. Sure. Right, right, right. Right, right, right. right. So, th- so there's, all, you know, every, every generation thinks that they are, can become the avant garde. And can Thank goodness. Actually- <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Go on. I'm sorry. I just want to put that in there. <laughs> because there's something about the lack of respect for the gesture mm. to want to overturn something or change something that I find. Mm. I'm like, and? Mm. So I'm not smart enough, like yourself, to be pessimistic. Mm. Goddamn. Mm. Okay. You know? mm. Okay. I'm always thinking of the future. I'm always thinking about archives. I'm always Steven thinking just about- cut you, by the way. <laughs> oh no, I didn't mean to shoot you. <laughs> oh no. You're on the prison floor. <laughs> call it, call, call the paramedics. We're all in here together. <laughs> Lead me to my shadows, my Plato's cave. Um, but yeah, I think that there's something mm. abysmal about the idea of saying, why try? Mm. <laughs> and I know he's not really saying that, no, but right, no. I think people are thinking, if I keep drinking, this is what I'm going to get. Or if I keep mm. walking down those sentences and I go, Poetry is the gesture of the, not poetry. Um, let me get back to what you were saying, because I really feel as if. Mm. Well, we've kind of drifted yeah. into other, which I think is fine. I think the argument applies to to something. I mean, he is making a larger argument than just about poetry. Um, yeah, but he also so says think, it's dangerous, though. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting, because then mm. on the one hand, you're saying it, it could be a bomb going off. On the other hand, you're saying that it doesn't matter unless you're reaching for a particular kind of aesthetic. And I go, mm, no, mm. this is why, um, you know, people don't want, I mean, regimes don't want alternate thinking. Poetry yes. is there. That's, that's right. That's you right. That's and right. it is a threat because it does get people thinking and it does inspire people. And we don't know when the bomb is going off. That's, mm-hmm. that's right. No, authoritarian you know? regimes, absolutely. That is absolutely one of the things they do. They start limiting artistic exploration because they are afraid of something that will inspire people to, to, to blow some shit up. Yeah. Yeah. Pinochet cut off the hands of the guitarist Victor Yara in whatever Mm -hmm. that, that national stadium was like, Jesus Christ. I I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the authoritarians do absolutely reflexively recognize the power of, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, obviously we're using poetry pretty broadly now, but I think that's fine. And I also, I, I feel like, um, you know, if, if what we're talking about is the, the argument just becomes pretty limited. If what we're saying is the art you make with words, right. right alone, right? Right, which course. is of course unique to poetry. And I, and I want to, you know, you, I want to hold it separately a little bit, but, uh, but certainly it's, it is quite powerful and quite potent. And, yeah. you know, that there is, there is nothing, there, there is no moment in which Americans are performing their Americanness more than when they sing the national anthem. And it's, it's set to terrible music to say that the national anthem <laughs> is, is about the, the music. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an awful song. <laughs> it's the words themselves. Right. Yes. Um, and and it's and and you know and you, someone might object like well you know they don't know all the words or what it doesn't really matter it, it's it's the ritual right. of that activity that's fucking poetry that's poetry mm. right yeah. there like that that in that moment 
America is being invented or reaffirmed over and over again, or not, or rejected, or disaffirmed. You know, it right. doesn't have to be, you know, even even in the moment of like kneeling or something like that during the national mm-hmm. anthem, that itself is, you don't get out of the system, right? What you're doing is you're indicting, you're indicting what America stands for, but you're still engaging. Right. You're not indifferent, Right. Indifference would be like, oh yeah, I overslept in the locker room and missed the national anthem, and, <laughs> you know, like that. But to actually come out and in that moment to to enact some kind of protest, you're still singing the fucking thing. Like you may of not course. be singing, but you are singing the same thing. You you are engaged in the same project. So, and that's so, a tremendously powerful. What other power is there, you. honestly, other than you Absolutely. know, like naked violence? Because it forces an engagement. Yeah. And so I think poo pooing that project can be a bit. I don't know, a bit, I don't know, I guess, is that poetry versus, versus poems? Mm. Reaching towards ineffable by saying that we're just going to transcend the thing because you never transcend it. Mm. Because you are using that form or you're using those ideas. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think he was a little too precious about this idea, honestly. Mm-hmm. I like the idea and I feel like, wow, I've read poems that do transcend and stop time and I just love them. Mm-hmm. But I'm also like, there's a silly little poem over here, that limerick, that I love. That, you know, it's also <laughs> kind of awesome, you know? Yeah. So so I, I don't want to, I feel like the garden can exist with everything. Mm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this one thing. And just because he feels that way, I mean, good, fine. I know other yeah. f- people who feel just like him, you know, and they're like, oh, if it doesn't do this. I don't know about rhyme. I don't know about, I mean, I know about rhyme, but I don't know about meter, a little yeah. bit about I am big pentameter, but that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to dissect the poem. I'm looking at it. How do I feel? Mm-hmm. That's normally what I go to poetry for. I don't go for mm-hmm. structure. Mm-hmm. I can admire it, mm-hmm. you know, but if the structure is too in my face and some poets do that, I'm, I'm disengaged. Yeah. I'm already out of the, um, I'm already out of the trip, you know, yeah. not a, yeah. on the trip. Mm-hmm. I yeah. just, w- mm-hmm. I just want to uh, put a slightly finer point on, uh, or add some data points to something I said before. The artist I was mm-hmm. talking about, his name is Piero Manzoni and artist shit was mm-hmm. made in 1961. And <laughs> the poem I referred to, uh, by Anne Sexton is titled when man enters woman. And the last stanza is this man, this woman with their double hunger have tried to reach through the curtain of God, and briefly they have, though God in his perversity unties the knot. <laughs> Which is fun. Yeah, that's a, that's a great poem. Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I like, thank you, Stephen, for checking me on that. I, I think you're right. Oh, I, think, I wasn't no, 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 <laughs> Well, I mean, it, I, I, was, I was, as I want to do, <laughs> headed down the road of pessimism to say like what is the what is really the point you're not gonna like you're not gonna blow anything up and you're right like you need to try you actually do it's a gesture I, yeah. I, I agree like and and I, this reminds me of something I heard probably on the radio years ago uh, I think when I was in California someone a teacher of middle school children described herself as someone who Describe teaching rather as placing little bombs inside of children. Oh, nice! And not, 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 without knowing when they would go off. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Stephen, you earlier you had sort of, and you reached for it a couple of times in the conversation, and then the conversation moved. Um, you talked about the being a published 
versus unpublished. Yeah, poem. that yeah. seemed that seemed yeah. to provoke you a little bit. What's yeah. the, what was the what was the well, it w- yeah good? It was fun because it's it's poetry. I think has such a small audience in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right. such a, yeah. a rarefied small audience, mm. and there are different pockets like, of them. More than half mm-hmm. our listeners aren't going to listen to this episode now. Exactly, <laughs> like poetry for what you know? But hopefully they will, and they'll find something useful. Um, but so. When people, you know, in the book, he talks about, you know, so published poet, people are asking you, do you have anything published? Because then that verifies them, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. this idea. Of, so mm-hmm. what it, what I felt was like, again, these sort of like um, brackets around poet. So you just mm-hmm. can't be a poet for poets. You got to do something important. Like I, rem- I mm-hmm. remember having a conversation with my best friend's father once who was like, so you decided to kill the poet to go to library school or to be a librarian. Mm. And I remember feeling so incensed mm. and so mm. angry and I only found the words for it last night, mm. which was I was hurt by the idea that he felt like I couldn't be an artist, that mm. I had to, mm. that I decided to do this thing over here when I was laboring, you know, trying to, trying to do both mm-hmm. and other things. I was just trying mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. an artist, but mm-hmm. that. The very comments like his, the way I read it, was that, and he's a, he's a trickster figure, by the way. I love him to death. He's always throwing little bombs here and there about what um, people should be up to. He's a very smart man. But, um, but I felt like I wrote a poem about it. I couldn't find it last night about I can't kill the artist, but I have to eat. I can't, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like you can eat off of this. I need to, mm-hmm. and also I need the space. You know, I had this. I have a Walt Whitman sensibility too. I'm just like leisure. Yeah, I want to. I want to sit here and chill and write. And mm-hmm. you know, I like the way that he, that the author, learner Ben Lerner, Ben Lerner, yeah, mm-hmm. framed ben this Lerner. idea of how Walt Whitman was. Too many details might have put people off, which I disagree with. But I like the idea of how Whitman was writing these poems. Mm-hmm. Anybody, everyone. And moving folks to even different kind of lyrical styles of poetry. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I love that. But I also feel like Whit- every time I look at Whitman, I'm just like, yeah, we would have been sitting around drinking, <laughs> laughing. <laughs> you know, I want the James Baldwin. I'm writing. Maybe some other things, too. I mean, you know. Maybe some other be, things, let's be, honest, let's be honest. About, yeah, I know. No, I know. It's not, it's not settled. Things. I know. Right. Exactly. It's not settled. <laughs> but who cares? It's oh, yeah, just, y'all, y'all mean libidinal things, right? Absolutely. We, we do. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. Made out with Walt Whitman. I don't know. But I feel like there's some power in, there's some truth in how the world, mm. and it's funny because I have this book called Capitalist Realism by um, Mark Fisher, Is There No Alternative? Mm. Being able to, not being able to understand that there's another way of living mm-hmm. has really limited the way I think people understand the efficacy of art and the vitality of it. I feel mm. like art can only tell you things that the government can't tell you or your church can tell you. Mm. And some, I'm paraphrasing something that Toni Morrison said, like there just needs to be something that is useful, but not uh, commodified mm-hmm. or made into an object. And I think that that mm. goes to the central, one of the central tenets of what he's talking about. Ben Lerner is in this book that once it's this thing, <laughs> what does it do? You know, is it going to sit in a book on the shelf and no one's going to pick it up? I feel mm-hmm. like, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but I picked up books that I didn't know anything about and it was poetry and it just transformed the way I, I saw things. I was like, hmm. oh, I love this writer. Hmm. I love this thinker, you know? Um, and I'm just so excited about the discovery of something rather than mm-hmm. just, I need to do this to be this right. so that I can make money, so that I can have a toilet. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, a private Absolutely. toilet. Absolutely, yeah. You know, <laughs> I just want to be one, as most bare <laughs> and as raw as possible. I don't want to be bothered. I want to have a door. You know, yeah. So, but 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 Stephen, just to just to kind of nudge you back towards um, that question, sure. what was what was your issue with Learner's distinction between published and unpub- um, unpublished poets? Thank you. That an artist must always verify or make him, him, her, or their selves visible mm. and meaningful to someone who's asking that question. Huh. Like it's not a process. Huh. Like you don't, you know, I'm a poet. That, you know, remember that proto-fame thing he talked about? I think mm-hmm. I forget it was mm-hmm. one, but, mm. which I thought was really interesting because over the years, I've listened to people tell me there were poets, but no, they write poetry, but right. they were poets. Right, mm. right, right, right. Therefore, sort of making that space a little gray, you know, because right. once I step into poet, right. then what are the expectations? Have you published anything? Can I read what you've read? Right. Dot, dot, dot. Right. And I don't feel like that when I'm a, well, I feel like that sometimes when people when I tell people I'm a writer, but then I can just point them to something on the internet. Go ahead. You know, get crazy. Yeah. Archivist throws them into to craziness. But anyway, back to the poetry thing. Mm. There's something really, I think bubbling under the surface around someone who might have alternative thoughts mm-hmm. <laughs> about yeah. the way that we're living. Mm. Do you know? Yeah, yeah so I, I do. I think and that's where the tension is. Mm. And I do yeah. think, I mean, it's a pretty productive tension and there are other ways to mm-hmm. take it um, than Lerner does mm-hmm. in, in, in almost the exact opposite direction. So Annie Dillard in... Um, in her book about writing, and I forget the title now. Uh, oh, I can look it up when she's brilliant. writing life Oof. or something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. She talks about how, you know, one of the funny things about being a writer or something like a poet is you could say at a certain age, oh, I'm a poet or a writer. <laughs> yes, yes. And not have ever written anything or not ever have actually completed a project. It's actually so ready at hand at a certain stage of development that, you know, it would be surprising if you walked across, across your college campus and didn't run into a poet, even though they had yes. not you know, ever actually written a poem. And she said, think about how strange that is. Like, if you met someone that said they were a firefighter yet had never fought a fire. Right. <laughs> so, right. you know, there's, there's something insubstantial about the activity itself. And so, which is kind of, it, it's, she's, you know, learners picked up on the same thing, but they kind of run in opposite directions. So uh-huh. for him, it's the self-conscious sheepishness of not being a more productive member. Right. And for Dillard, it's how ready at hand it is to to make a proclamation about what you are without actually having produced mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. And there is that tension there because, you know, it's it's sort of the, you know, to make it, uh, to make a, um, a deeper connection, it mm-hmm. is, I've always or at least in my adult life, I have felt that, that there is, a, it's, excuse me, a continuation of a shamanic tradition. I'm not the only person to, to say this or feel this way mm-hmm. about poetry, a certain kind of poetry. Um, mm-hmm. or actually, let's not even do it. This Like okay. all of it, right? Because okay. you have to both be attached to a society and supported by society in the way that you're describing, Stephen, you got to, you know, have a door, you have to have things to help take care, you know, to like Mm -hmm. eat and sleep and all the rest of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And it is the most intensely private activity. It's just you 
and the language that you were born into mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. that you chose later in life. Mm-hmm. And you're just wrestling with the angels. Mm-hmm. Like that's there's it. nothing, there's there's nothing more ethereal than that activity. Like mm-hmm. your right. your antagonists are invisible. They don't, there's no lexicon for no. it. Like there no. no no dictionary can capture all of the words that mm-hmm. there are that you can bring to bear, all of the sounds, all of mm-hmm. the syntax. Mm-hmm. And so the activity itself is this weird amalgam of needing to be in the society, because if your ass was out in the woods, you wouldn't be writing poems, you'd be trying to survive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's it, it just a leisureliness of, yeah. of spare time, right? Yeah. It suggests all this when it's completely not true. Right. Yeah. It's completely not true. Right. Yeah. So right. you know so it, it is a very it is a very productive tension, I think, to, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 um, you know, it is a, a wedge to think with, I think, that tension between <laughs> I, the two. I like it too. I like the tensions. Yeah. And there's, and there's one more thing I want to discuss, which, um, mm-hmm. which bothered me, but in a good way. Uh, he says this on page 17. Plato concluded, ellipses, that there was no place for poetry in the Republic because poets or rhetoricians who pass off imaginative projections as the truth and risk <laughs> corrupting the citizens of the just city. So mm. I, I've never taken a course on, on Plato or Socrates um, mm. or pre-Socratic thought. So I might, you know, my grip on this stuff is really tenuous. Um, I think, Travis, mm-hmm. this is your wheelhouse, so you could probably help me out here. Right. But mm-hmm. Basically, the Republic is this imaginative construct, right, from Plato of like the sort of in some ways, ideal society. And what he taught, what he just described there, I think if we were talking about our society, we wouldn't be talking about poets. We'd be talking about like Alex Jones. That's who he does mm-hmm. not want in the Republic. Like he does yeah. not want Tucker Carlson, right? Like he does not want the guy who's um, on the street corner saying that most of the black men walking around today aren't the original Asiatic black man, but there's some right. corruption of that, like that right. mm-hmm. I- idyllic mm-hmm. warrior um, mm-hmm. poet. That's who he's talking about. And is he? Isn't he, it? Uh, so I think I think Seth is on to something there, I, uh, because mm-hmm. you know the. Obviously, talking about two radically different moments in history, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. who who can control the discourse? Who gets to talk? I mean, that's really that's what ultimately what we're talking about. Who gets to talk? Right. And you know, in the ancient Greek, in ancient Greece, they had this thing called a skeptron, which we get scepter from. And the person, like in the in when they were in, um, it's kind of their pre-state. Uh, level that uh, what do you call a chieftain, right? So, mm-hmm. which is a stage of social development. The person who hold this held the skeptron get to, got to speak. So you know, kind of like the talking stick is mm-hmm. is is the native right. uh, certain mm-hmm. the Native American tribes equivalent. So who gets to speak is who has the power for social monkeys. Mm-hmm. Like we see that right now. So in in ancient Greece, in that sort of tension, what he's talking about is a tension between other elites and other social classes about who's going to hold the power in that society, who's going to get to speak, who's going to get to articulate what it means right. to be a Greek. Yes, is it going absolutely. to be? Yeah. So, in, in, you know, the kind of a catch all for that is poets. But I think, Seth, you're absolutely right that you're picking up on that vein. And you have to, I mean, have you listened to Alex Jones or have you listened to these people? <laughs> like, I have to say, so, well, they were uh, Alex Jones was featured in uh, Richard Linkletter's. Uh, oh yeah, uh, Waking Life. Waking in fact, Life. Stephen, Stephen, you you told me that I think actually I think that's yeah. why I He's know. He's in that. there. Yeah, that man is absolutely crazy, but mm-hmm. he is definitely 
inspired, like enthusiastically mm-hmm. inspired. Like mm-hmm. yeah. I could not do what he does. Like no. I couldn't mm-hmm. riff on any topic mm-hmm. that coherently and it is coherent if you're listening to it, not if you see it in writing. But mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. is a kind of poetic power. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's absolutely right on on topics. Who who gets to talk? Well, it's, well, it, see, well you it, can tell go ahead, Stephen. I'm sorry. I just very briefly, mm-hmm. the idea who gets to talk is what I was getting at. So it may not be an Alex Jones type, but it just may be someone that Plato disagrees with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair yeah. enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. But, I mean, controls the narrative. But I wanna yeah. say but I wanna say like Alex Jones or the Alex Jones type is a particularly corrosive oh, uh, agent for mm-hmm. um, for our our culture because what he precisely does is makes makes it well. First of all, the power that he has, Travis, can also be seen in the number of followers he has. Sure, like, look how absolutely. many goddamn people listen to Alex Jones on the regular absolutely. and buy the snake oil that he's shilling mm-hmm. um, in, in, in all his programs. I think he's dangerous. I think he's a corrosive force. I just, I mean, you know, Plato, what Plato is basically saying or suggesting is they just should not exist. Now that the cats they should are, be banned. No, they, they should, should be banned, banned from they the book. Bo- and and to be you. clear, to be clear, we're governed by a bunch of Platonists because that's what we're doing right now. We yeah. are censoring people from their access to to speak. And I know we're not talking about it's not a free speech. And we're not kind of duking that out. Right. But mm-hmm. but this idea, I mean, it, it's very old, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and and, yeah. and it clearly still has currency because that's mm-hmm. literally what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. We're literally saying these people don't get to speak. And um, and I want to I want to kind of play the role you sometimes play, Travis, here, and um and come after the left a little bit because mm. uh, I, I'm reminded of a conversation mm. that uh, I had with a bunch of people I met on Zoom through my friend Laura Von Straten, who's an arts writer and former television producer. And so she's in the mix of the art scene. Um, mm-hmm. We were all gathering at her house and uh, the guy had been sitting around chatting and, and listening to music and playing a game. But in the chatting portion of it, we were sitting around a table and we were talking about sort of um, some problem that came up in, in, in with regards to a show, and it was basically what came to the surface of the of the event was the small town hysteria um, that was flecked by homophobia and racism. Right, so they were okay. they mm-hmm. ginned up about something, and mm-hmm. all of that nastiness came to uh, swam to the surf, swam up to the surface. And Laura was saying something about like how. As a white woman, she feels that it's really important to do blah, blah, blah. And that she recognizes that her experience is not my, is not the experience of a black woman and that, and that black women's experiences need to have their own light shone on them because they're not, they're her, like her experience as white woman is taken to be like the general experience of women, something like that, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And Peter, mm-hmm. the, the guy she was seeing at the time, said something like, "Yeah, I get it, um, um, uh, but you know, when someone in their own halting fashion, who do, someone who doesn't have the words, someone here, and the way he said it was someone who doesn't have the microphone, mm-hmm. and is trying to like in their own sort of mm-hmm. glumping way." Say, well, I feel this way about that, but I don't have the right words and I'm kind of uncomfortable with blah, this aspect, but I'm mm-hmm. trying to understand like 
where you're coming from. And he says, you know, those people who don't have the microphones, who are maybe just kind of ignorant, they get shut mm. down regularly by mm -hmm. people on the left who consider themselves quite woke. And I think in certain instances, that's absolutely the case that, that people who don't have the right words, who don't, who don't, won't use the term trans. They'll use some other term, which is, mm -hmm. right. which is whatever they want to say. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and it's not, and they do so not necessarily coming from a place of dismissiveness or, mm -hmm. uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Disdain. But they don't have the microphone. So they're not given a chance to like figure out what words to use. Right, right. But that's the impatience people have for like being in a public sphere or being on a social media platform, mm -hmm. the moment to think and reflect. Mm -hmm. That's not this moment. Mm -hmm. This moment is not go away, tell me what you think later on. Mm -hmm. We can agree to disagree or we can continue this conversation once we've maybe done some thinking about it. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. Mm -hmm. So that's what I, when you said that, I was like, yeah. And also the people who have the mic. So I, at one point, I remember just seeing when you said the mic, that there's just one mic. Mm -hmm. And then I saw a bunch of mics, right? Mm -hmm. Who are we talking to? Right. Mm -hmm. Who do we want to value us? Right. Mm -hmm. All of those things. And so I'm not sure if I'm having a general conversation sometimes or if I'm having a very specific conversation with this particular person mm -hmm. that has ramifications for a larger conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the... What this podcast and other um, things that I've been involved in is that with relationships, you can go back and think about something and come for sure and mm -hmm. say, you know, I thought about what you said, but all of us have done it on this podcast, you know. Yeah. Oh mm -hmm. yeah, I thought about what you said, but you know, here's what I here's something I was mm -hmm. thinking about. Or mm -hmm. you do some research and you come back to it. Mm -hmm. I'd encourage everybody to take a moment to say, I don't know what I think about that, or mm -hmm. I want to think about that a little bit more, because I think it would stop, rah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you should say this or you should say that. And, right. the hot and take. it's like, yeah. hot mm -hmm. take. Yeah. And I will say, though, this on the other side, because if the left can be accused of wokeism, the right can be accused of, well, I know what I know. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so it's a bit similar to me. Absolutely. It's just that Absolutely. someone might have more um, language and more um, clear language mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. that I get. I'm like, oh, I get that too. Mm -hmm. So, oh my God, my cat just jumped in my lap, has not done this in a long time, but he is feeling yeah, to, like, love me. <laughs> to, uh, love you me. know, the, the, the left right thing, I, there was, I haven't read it yet, but there's a New Yorker article um, on um, this research psychologist, and I'm not gonna remember her name right now, um, that uh, basically, you know, kind of in the encapsulation of the story talks about, you know, on the left, it's, if we're going to just use the binaries, which I know we all try to avoid, but, you know, on the left, it's, um, they want to deny um, the fact that heredity or genetics have anything to do with who we turn out to be as people. But on the right, they're like all in. Genetics is all of it, right? I mean, this is kind, I mean, this is kind of what underlies yeah. a, a, a true, this is what underlies white apartheid, racial apartheid in American history, right? It's that, it, it, it's just, it's what I was born with. It's just the burden I was born with. You know, like I just, you know, I, I just, I didn't ask to be born white. I just have to take care of all you folks who aren't. I'm sorry. Like <laughs> that's, that, that's the sort of genteel, you know, excuse that right. is made for, and so that kind of genetic determinism mm. is, is, 
is also totally fucking wrong. Like, it's just wrong. Right. And the other is wrong, too. I mean, about, like, you know, our genetics influence who we are. Like, it's just, you know, sure. it influences our capacity. I'm never going to dunk. There's, like, there's all kinds of, you know, very low-hanging fruit <laughs> right, to right, use right. as examples of that. Right. Um, so... Anyway, so just to back up and to actually and uh, to pull something else back to to practice what Stephen just explained, the one that I go back to regularly, uh, I'm in in my circle of friends out here in California, is what you had said a while ago, Stephen, about like how exhausted you are to have to have a fucking opinion about everything. Mm. Like yeah. it's just exhausting to have mm. to have an opinion about every. And I'm a, an opinion made. I'm very opinionated. We like, know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, I, no, 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 you know, but like, it is just exhausting. No. Yeah. <laughs> and then this idea that. When your opinions betray you mm. because you want to be right mm. in a conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or other forms of betrayal. Mm. So, like, yeah. I'm trying not to betray myself and also go, you know, issue my own insecurity or anxiety about ha- having to have an on the spot, coherent response to what you just said when yeah. I haven't really thought about what you said. Right. Yeah. You know? Right. So, so. Seth, you want to take us out? So, I mean, because yeah. you, yeah. I, I just want to say about the book by Ben Lerner, The Hatred of Poetry, that um, for mm-hmm. all the problems that we have with the book, and, and we talked about them uh, today, I think that it's actually a book worth reading. Uh, oh, I, w- yeah. I would definitely read this again. And thank you, mm-hmm. Nadine, for suggesting that I read this and for giving it to me, for actually putting it in my hand. Um, because I think in some ways it has, along with this conversation, really enlarged some sense of why I really still appreciate the fuck out of poetry because it actually mm-hmm. can do some things that um, nothing else can. Yeah, okay. it provokes conversation. Yeah, thank you, uh, Nadine, for recommending the book and Ben for writing it. I don't have a book of uh, on the hatred of poetry, so respect. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I mean that quite seriously. It is not tongue in cheek at all. So, um, uh, so. Uh, thank you both for the conversation and uh, we'll catch awesome. up in a couple. Don't forget that uh, next week will be the notes. So, uh, and you'll also have a chance to hear Stephen's uh, notes on Shakari Richardson. Um, he uh, was able to upload them after recovering from the concussion. So thank you, Stephen. Oh, my head. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we should. Well, okay. So we can talk about that after we will. So I'll just say goodbye. And then we got to figure out what we're talking about for next week's notes. So um, sounds good. thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.